0: Lord, we ask for your uh, anointing uh, on us and on your word that we would have um, spiritual eyes to see and hear and discern what you're trying to get across to us uh, specifically and personally. Lord, we pray that you would do that, that you would just speak to us in a profound way. Lord, if we need to be challenged, you would challenge us. If we need to be encouraged, you would encourage us. And uh, above all things, as we look at this text, we would uh, realize how much you love us, God, because we know that that's uh, your priority, is love, Lord. So speak clearly to us tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, we ended 1 Samuel chapter 31 and Saul died, right? He he died just as uh, what Samuel prophesied uh, about him. Then we get to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 1. David, he mourns over the death of King Saul. And later on in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see David is finally anointed king. But he's not quite yet anointed king of Israel. And that was the promise to David that he would be the king of Israel right now. In the present moment, he's only the king of Judah. Only uh, the king of one of twelve tribes. Well, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that just as David becomes king of Judah... Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, the army of Israel, he goes and finds Ishbosheth. Uh, Saul's last remaining son, and he anoints him king over the rest of Israel. So we see Israel right now is a kingdom divided. God has appointed David to be king of Israel, but a man came and appointed Ishbosheth as the king of Israel. So David is the king of Judah. Ishbosheth is the king of Israel. We know God's promise again was that David would be king of all of Israel. And that this chapter we'll see, despite the division in Israel, despite the uprising against David, despite these power-hungry men, despite all these little obstacles getting in the way of God fulfilling His promise to David, God's promise still stands. And that's the title of this teaching, His Promise Still Stands. His Promise Still Stands. Now, sometimes we could think, hey, if God makes a promise, he can deliver on it ASAP. And he can't. If he makes a promise, there's nothing preventing him from fulfilling that promise. But so often, God will make promises, and they won't get fulfilled. And maybe the timing that we'd like, they're not always Fulfilled in the way that we'd like. Sometimes the fulfillment of God's promises come with a very rocky road. Sometimes God's promises uh, come with a lot of barriers, a lot of obstacles. And we can question, hey God, was that promise for real? Was that promise legitimate? Was that promise from you? Well, we can be sure of something. If God made a promise, He's going to deliver on that promise. And again, despite all these obstacles that come David's way, we will see God's promise fulfilled. Now, it's not going to be fulfilled until 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let's look what happens on this road to God, fulfilling this promise to David. We actually ended with 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. We'll reread it. It says, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Despite the division in this nation, David, his kingdom is growing. Why? Because God's blessing is upon David. So we look at verse 2, it says, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, The Jezreelites, his second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmeh, king of Gishar, and fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth, uh, Shephatiah, the son of Abetal, and the sixth, Ithraim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, this really connects to that verse uh 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1 that David's kingdom is growing stronger and stronger. But this is really interesting as we look at verses 2 to 5 how this kingdom is growing stronger. Yes, God was blessing David, but we see the way that this kingdom is growing stronger isn't all from the Lord. Meaning, David's kingdom is being established on things that it shouldn't be established on. What I'm getting at is the many wives that David has. That wasn't part of God's plan. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Let me make the point. It's as if David is trying to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. And we can do that. We can attempt to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. Not him becoming king, but him strengthening and growing and establishing his kingdom. And this is point number one of three. Our flesh can't fulfill God's promises. Our flesh can't fulfill God's promises. David wasn't establishing his kingdom exactly the way that God wanted him to. Why do I say that? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Lord laid out clear guidelines as to the type of king that was supposed to rule Israel. And one of the things he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, speaking of the king He says, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. We see all these wives that David has that wasn't a part of God's original plan. God created man, he created woman, one man, one woman, those two coming together, one flesh. That was God's intention all along. And people can look at the Bible and say, we see polygamy and God supports polygamy and all these different things. Just because we see polygamy in the Bible doesn't mean that God supports it. God just is about telling us the truth through the word. When we look at the word in its entirety and look at God's plan, we can discern what's right and what's wrong. Every time we see polygamy in the Bible, there are a lot of negative things that come along with this. I'll bring you to an example of another person. That attempted to fulfill God in his flesh. Went about things his way. It's the father of faith. It's Abraham. If you remember... God made a promise to Abraham that through his seed he, was, he would bless the nations. The problem was, Abraham was so old and Sarah was so old, this didn't seem possible that, that God could truly bless Abraham with this individual. So Sarah starts questioning, eh, maybe my womb, uh, hey, God can't use my womb, maybe I can't have a child, so what you do? She said, sleep with my servant, Hagar. Maybe that's what God's talking about. Maybe that's how we're supposed to fulfill God's promise. And look what it says here in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Paul uses this example specifically. Abraham. Trying to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. Galatians chapter four verse twenty three. But who was? Uh, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. He's talking about Hagar and Sarah. The child that was born of the bondwoman, Hagar, she was a slave was born of the flesh. Why? Because that's not the promise that God originally gave Abraham. That was Abraham and Sarah coming up with a plan in their flesh to fulfill God's promise. The promised son was who? It was Isaac. And look at all the trouble that came from Abraham attempting to fulfill this promise in the flesh. What happened? Well, Ishmael ended up becoming the father of the nation of Islam. Okay. That's truly where Islam comes from. It comes from the lineage of Ishmael. So much so that Muslims believe that it was Ishmael that was nearly sacrificed on the mountain and not Isaac. And there are all these wars and destruction that has come from this single situation. Just a guy trying to fulfill God's promise in his flesh. See, when we try to fulfill God's promises in our flesh, we cause all kinds of problems. Now, practically, this is going to look like many things. Maybe, maybe God promised you that He's going to reconcile a specific relationship in your life. And He said, Hey, 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 I know you got this issue with this person. I'm maybe it's with a wife or a, a spouse or somebody that you've been with, even a friend or a family member. And He says, Hey, I'm going to bring reconciliation to this. We get that promise from God. And what do we do? Oh, I got to pursue reconciliation with this person. That could be true, but it may not be true. See, sometimes when God says, I'm going to bring reconciliation between you and that person, a lot of times He wants us to step back and let Him do the reconciliation. Why? Because He has to mend that person's heart, and He has to do that work in your heart, and you guys aren't ready to reconcile. God has to bring that reconciliation together. Maybe God promised you that you're going to have a spouse. He promised you one day you're going to have a husband one day you're going to have a wife and we could take that God said I'm going to have a wife or he said I'm going to have a husband. And we can go on this dating rampage looking at every single guy and girl that we see and think this is the one that God sent me and try to convince ourselves that God's promise is fulfilled through this person. But it may not be true. See. God is the one that fulfills His promises. We don't fulfill God's promises. We do have a responsibility, which I'll get into uh, in a second, but often when God gives us a promise, one of our primary responsibilities is to wait. We see. In Second Peter chapter three, in Second Peter chapter three, Peter makes this very clear. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse uh, 9 He says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance You hear that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises We can't take His patience for weakness. Just because there's a time gap between the time that God made a promise and the fulfillment of that promise, it doesn't mean that God is not faithful. It doesn't mean that God is not able. He makes promises at a specific time, an appointed time, and He fulfills those promises at an appointed time. There's often a reason why there's that time gap there. And what's the reason? Well, it could be many reasons. One of the primary reasons is that God is trying to produce precious faith in us. He wants us to trust him. And how how, how much trust do we have if God makes a promise one day and he answers that promise later on that day? We didn't really have to go through a long span of time and, and waiting on the Lord and trusting in His faithfulness. This is why He often has that time gap in between the time that He makes the promise and the time that He fulfills the promise. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. Our responsibility is to trust God's promises, to wait until He delivers. And when he delivers on his promise, yes, move forward and take hold of the promise. See, David, though the Lord's blessing his kingdom, what's happening between verses 2 and 5 in 2 Samuel chapter 3 is is not right. It wasn't God's intended plan. And this promise that he attempts to fulfill in his flesh, if you will, and having all these wives, because that's what was culturally popular and having all these sons. It wasn't bad for him to have all these sons, but each of the sons that he has is from a different wife. He has six wives and six sons. The fact that he has all these wives is going to cause him tremendous amounts of problems, specifically through the sons that are birthed. Let's look at a couple of these sons. We'll get into uh, them a little bit later in 2 Samuel. And then if we get to to 1 Kings, even more so. These sons, Amnon, the firstborn son, you know what he did? He ended up raping his half-sister. Okay, He raped his half-sister. Well, if David only had one wife, then Amnon wouldn't have a half-sister, and that may not have happened. Okay, now guess what happens after that? Absalom gets upset that Amnon raped his half-sister. So what does he do? He kills him, and then he proceeds to take over the kingdom. He tries to take David's kingdom. David flees, the Lord resolves it, and then we see Absalom is killed. Then you have Adonijah, the fourth-born son, and what does he do? He tries to take the throne from David too. See that start to happen in 1 Kings chapter 1. Then, not only that, he takes one of David's concubines. Another issue. If David had one wife and he didn't have any concubines, that situation likely wouldn't have happened. You see all these issues that proceed simply because David wasn't establishing his kingdom exactly the way the Lord intended. As much as we love David, he makes some poor choices here and there. He is just a man. But I want to point to something. To look at this positive character quality that we see in David in the midst of all these different wives. In 2 Samuel chapter 3. Verse 5, look what it says. After he has a sixth son with his sixth wife, it says, These were born to David in Hebron. They were born in Hebron. What does that tell us? David hasn't moved from the last place God called him to be. He, he didn't take off. He didn't pursue taking over the rest of Israel. God called him to dwell in Hebron. That's what it says in the last chapter. And he dwelt in Hebron. He didn't look for the next thing. He was content in the present thing. He has these kids exactly where God had him. So at least in that sense, he's being faithful. Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 6. Now it was so... While there, uh, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So it says Abner is strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. It's really the kingdom of Saul. Technically the kingdom of Ishbosheth, okay? Because Ishbosheth is Saul's son. He is the king right now. But it says Abner is the one that's being strengthened, meaning he's getting more and more control over this kingdom. See, Ishbosheth is like a puppet king. Abner is the real strength behind this kingdom. He's just use, using Ishbosheth to be in this place of power. Picking it up in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizba, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? This is a pretty serious accusation. Well, Saul's dead. What's the big deal? Well in that culture, uh if a king had a concubine, even if that king died, that concubine in their eyes still belonged to the king. So the concubine couldn't be with another man. So in their eyes, in Ishbosheth's eyes, this concubine still belongs to King Saul. So this was a tremendous accusation. Not only that, if you took a king's concubine, basically you were saying, I'm the king now. I'm the king now. I'm the one that has the authority to take whoever I please. Now the question comes did Abner really take the concubine? Did, did he really sleep with Saul's concubine? The text isn't very clear. The text doesn't tell us exactly whether or not Abner actually slept with the concubine. Did, uh, did Ishbosheth make this up because he was threatened that Abner was getting stronger in the kingdom and essentially taking over the kingdom? Maybe. But it seems like because it's such a harsh accusation, such a serious accusation, it seems surprising that Ishbosheth would make something like this up. You know, just make it up like he just came up with this thing. I really don't know whether Abner did this or not. The text isn't clear, even as we continue. But it does seem that Abner has this issue with entitlement. Entitlement. He is power hungry. That's why he established Ishbosheth from the beginning. It's not that he wanted Ishbosheth to be the king. He wanted to be in power. And he knew Ishbosheth was a very weak man. He wasn't doing this for the glory of God or the benefit of Israel. He was doing that for the benefit of self. So when you look at that character quality, perhaps he thought he was entitled to the king's possessions. Perhaps he thought he was entitled to the king's concubine. The text goes on, second Samuel, chapter Three, verse eight. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah?' Today, I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends. And, uh, and I've not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. So Abner gets mad. Is he mad because this is a false accusation or is he mad Because he believes he has the right, because of all the things that he did, he has the right to Saul's concubine. Again, we don't know. But we continue to see these faulty character qualities in Abner. Look what he says again. He says, today I show loyalty to the house of Saul in your father. He says, Basically, I've been doing all these things because I've been loyal to King Saul. But we know that that's not the truth. And we'll see this play out even in this chapter. Abner only cares about number one. He only cares about himself. He's not doing this out of loyalty. He's doing this for his own selfish gain. So he says... He says, "And I have not delivered you into the hand of David. I could have delivered you into the hand of David all this time, but I didn't. I've been protecting you, Ishbosheth. I've been on your side all along, and you're going to charge me with this accusation that I slept with this woman." He goes on to say in 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 9, May God do so to Abner and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. We'll get into this a little bit more. But Abner was aware of the promise that God made to David concerning the kingdom. Okay, He was already aware of it. We see the rebellion once again in Abner. Verse 10. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner says, well, if this guy's going to accuse me of this, whether it's true or not, maybe I'm better off with David. This is what Abner's thinking. Right now, I'm basically the one in charge, so I can make a covenant with David because I'm really the commander of the whole army of the 11 tribes, the whole army of the rest of Israel other than Judah. So maybe I can use this as some type of advantage to get me in a high-ranking position in David's kingdom. So Abner, after he says these things, Ishbosheth can't respond, it says in verse 11, because he feared him. We see the weakness of Ishbosheth. We'll continue to see the weakness of this man. He's afraid of Abner. He's not really the king that God would have because he's not the king that God has chosen. And we see Ishbosheth must be aware of the promise that God made to David. We see that many people across the nation were aware of this promise. Abner's obviously aware of it. Ishbosheth likely was too, but we see in Ishbosheth, he had a fear of man. He didn't have a fear of God. He didn't have a fear of God. Because if he had a fear of God, he would have never taken the position of king to begin with. So now he has something to be afraid of, not only as his right hand man against him, but he's up against the Lord and the Lord's anointed. Second Samuel chapter three verse twelve. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying whose is the land saying also make your covenant with me and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So Abner offers to make a covenant with David and basically says, Hey, I'll help establish you as the authority. I'll support you as king of Israel. You can have the rest of the army and all the other tribes. I'll go to bat for you. I'll be essentially your campaign manager, which we'll see later. So we asked David to make this covenant. And David's going to accept this covenant. But this isn't a covenant that David should trust. Why? Because it's a covenant of man. And it's not necessarily the covenant of God. This is the second point. Trusting God's promises, not man's. Trusting God's promises, not man's. Think about this, okay? It was only a chapter ago, okay? Don't know exactly how much time has gone by. But it was only a chapter ago that Abner... Caused the rebellion, caused a, basically a, a civil war, if you will, by anointing this other king when David was actually the rightful king. Why would you trust a man, or a woman for that matter, who's in rebellion against God? Why would you trust someone that says anything when they're in direct rebellion against god now you could say well This is repentance on abner's part I wouldn't give him that just yet because I don't think he's doing any of these things for the lord He's doing it for self See abner He could be sincere In this covenant that he's making with David, we don't really know. He's not going to get a chance to prove himself Uh, next week. Joab is going to kill him, not to ruin the story. But the point is that we shouldn't trust the promises of man, especially trusting the promises of man over the promises of God. The Bible talks about this time and time again. Let me show you. It's Psalm 118, verse nine. We're going to look at a couple places. Psalm 118. look at verse eight. even gives us a little more. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. We're called to trust in the Lord, not necessarily put our trust in man. The Bible, as I mentioned, talks about this quite a bit. There's actually even fruit that comes from trusting in the Lord versus trusting in man. Jeremiah talks about it in Jeremiah chapter 17. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he says this, verse 5 to 8. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 to 8. It says, Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. So we see when we put our full trust in man, we're setting ourselves up for failure, God tells us. But look at the difference between trusting in man versus trusting in God, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Bible says don't put your trust in man. Now, does that mean you can't trust anyone? Well, hopefully you have people that you can trust, but ultimately our trust isn't in an individual, isn't in a person, it's in God. Why? Because trust in man is a trust that's always going to disappoint. Okay, I want you guys to be transparent real quick. Have you ever made a promise that you didn't follow through with, that you didn't keep? Come on. Ever made a promise that you didn't keep so I don't trust any of you guys No, i'm kidding Some of you I do but the point is we're not supposed to put our trust in man because we're flawed Even if we intend on fulfilling a promise that we make and we all do it We all make commitments man. I really want to do this I really want to follow through with this and then for whatever reason we blame it on schedule or whatever the case may be I couldn't do it God doesn't do that God will never do that. He will never say, I'm going to do this and not follow through and do it. God is a God who follows through. Why? Because that's who he is. That's his character. And this is what he bases all of his promises on. Let me show you. It's Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. He gives us this example of the uh, covenant promise that uh, God made to Abraham. And look what he says in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You hear that? God couldn't swear on anyone greater, so he swore by himself. See, we shouldn't swear to God, but God can swear to God. And when God swears to God, you know what he's swearing by? He's swearing by his name. And God's name is his character. So God, when he makes his promise, it's all rooted in his name, which is his character. And his character is true. His character is faithful. He's a promise keeper. That's the character that God has. See, we can trust God's promises because we can trust his character. If he says that he's going to do something, he will always follow through And do it. See, David, he's making a covenant with Abner. But I don't believe he's putting faith in the covenant that he's making with Abner. He's putting faith in the covenant that God made with him. That God's going to make him king of Israel. Regardless of what Abner does, yeah, God could use it and he will. But ultimately, it's not Abner that's going to fulfill God's promise. It's God. The text continues 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 13 And David said, "Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face." So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, "Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Okay, let's backtrack a little bit. Interesting story, right? What happened? Well, originally in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, 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 Saul promised whoever takes out Goliath can have my daughter's hand in marriage. You remember that? So what happened? David, the unlikely candidate, he wipes out Goliath. Then it's David's opportunity to marry Saul's daughter. He gets the chance to marry Macau, and then Saul adds another one on his plate and says, hey, 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 here are the conditions for this marriage. You need to get me a hundred Philistine foreskins. It's like, wait, 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 David shouldn't have to pay any type of dowry, let alone foreskins, okay? Um, if, if, If you're with a girl, okay, and their father asks you to do anything like, that's just madness, right? This is what Saul did. And it was ungodly, it was unrighteous, it was dishonest. David had the right to marry Michal because Saul said, if you kill Goliath, whoever does, you have the right to marry my daughter. And so what does David do? Humbles himself and he goes out. And he doesn't just get 100 foreskins, he gets 200 foreskins. He went the extra mile in getting foreskins. So David had the right to marry Michal. Not only that, she actually loved him. So David says, hey, uh, uh, here's the deal. If we're going to make a covenant, I want my wife back. Now, obviously, we look at that and be like, okay, uh, yeah, that makes sense. David wants his wife back. But there were probably many other reasons why David did this. See, this was uh, very politically wise, if you will. Why? Because if David remarries, or I don't even know if you would call it a remarriage, they're technically still married. If David gets back with Michal, that shows that David isn't against Saul's house, which he's not. He's already said that he made promises to Saul and Jonathan that he's not going to go after his children. So it looks good. Now the kingdom can be united. Okay, everybody feels good, right? David's with Michal. Okay, ish it didn't work out, but this this feels good. Also, it would solidify David again as the son-in-law of Saul. Technically, he still is the son-in-law of Saul. So he would have somewhat of a right to the throne. At least he's in the family. That makes sense? so we see that the reason Michal is no longer with David is why if you recall it was back when uh king Saul ran David out of the kingdom took his position away took uh basically everything away from him and he w- uh actually had his wife Macal uh remarried to another individual so this is why David is asking for her back let's look what happens 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 15 and Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. This is like the saddest thing ever, right? Like, he comes in, this dude obviously, like, legitimately legitimately loved this woman, okay, now they're married, right, and and he comes in, and he, and he takes the husband, he says, hey, we're giving you back to David, so this guy's, like, following her, just weeping, and after says, go home, this is so cruel, and it almost makes you like, come on, Dave, you got six wives, right, do you still need, it? like, yeah, she's technically your wife, but you really need to break this guy's heart, like, is one more wife actually gonna help out your cause, but it's what David wanted. This poor man. Second Samuel chapter three, verse seventeen. Now Abner had communicated with the elders, elders of Israel, saying, "In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you." So. Abner, he's communicating with the elders why. Well, basically, he's uh, campaigning for David, if you will. Uh, even if he says, hey, we got to recognize uh, David as king, there still needs to be other people that recognize David as king. So he's speaking to the elders and he tells them, hey, hey, you remember you wanted to be David to be king at one point. See, at this point, again, David is only The king of Judah. And he's dwelling in Hebron. Now, David gives us a couple pictures of Jesus and also our relationship with Jesus in this text, in this chapter and how he goes about things. One, we kind of talked about it last week. He's not campaigning for himself. Okay? He's not going around uh, and trying to convince the elders to follow him, right? Uh, he talks to some men in the last chapter and he just lays it out there. Uh, he says, if you want to follow me, you can, but I'm not trying to persuade you to follow me. This is very similar to our relationship with the Lord, right? He doesn't force us to follow him. He persuades us through what? His loving kindness. It's not even like he's actually trying to persuade us. It's more like he's wooing us, not just trying to convince us. So we see this picture with David. But we also see something else. At this point, as I mentioned, David is only uh, the king of Judah, not all of Israel. David as a picture of Christ. Represents individuals' responses to the kingship of Christ, if you will. What do I mean? Some people, picture a person as Israel, the nation of Israel. Some people say, I'll let you dwell and rule over this part of my life being Judah, but the rest of it ain't, ain't happening. You can dwell over my church life and you can reign and you can rule here, but you can't rule all over here. And some people, they don't fully reject the Lord's authority and kingship, they just reject it in certain areas of their life. Now, others, as David will eventually take over all of Israel, They fully recognize the Lord's kingship. They bring him in as Lord of their life in every capacity in their relationships with friends, with family members, with co-workers, the way they work, the way they do life, the way they eat, the way they drink, every bit of it. And then you have those. Like Abner in the beginning who completely reject the Lord's kingdom completely reject his rulership Even though they know that he is the rightful king as Abner did So he tells the elders Abner not David. He tells the elders. Hey, remember you wanted David to be king over you If you recall David was in good standing with the people of israel he was basically their leader. Even though Saul was technically the king, he was their shepherd, if you will, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the people loved David. They had a heart for David. They respected David. So this would obviously be pretty appealing to their elders. And that's what Abner is using. Remember, you wanted this guy to be king. He goes on, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from my hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. You see what Abner says? Okay, this is a corrupt man. We can really use this. You want to make David your king? Then do it. Make him your king. You know he's the king. You know he's the rightful king. You don't have any questions about his identity. Make him your king, see This also connects to our relationship with Christ. Some recognize that He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. They recognize that He actually is the Messiah, but they just don't do it. Do what? Make Him Lord. Put Him in that place in their lives and in their hearts. And some people believe and say, kind of like what Abner did, I don't want to do it now, let me see how I can do on my own and then I might try it out later down the road. When my life doesn't work out the way that I want it to, okay? and I realize that I'm not the greatest king, maybe I'll consider King Jesus. Maybe I'll consider it. Abner said, hey, just do it, guys. Make him king. Recognize his kingship. But he also reveals this. Once again, that he knew the promise that God made to Abraham. I'll reread it. Verse 18. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So Abner... He quotes scripture when it's convenient for him, right? He wasn't doing this in the last chapter when Ishbosheth, when he wanted him to be king. Now he's quoting the promise that God made to David that he would establish him as king of Israel. We know Abner has been aware of this promise, but it's not till now that he's recognizing and responding to God's promise. And this is the third and final point. Recognize. And respond to God's promises. Recognize and respond to God's promises. The longer we wait to recognize and respond to God's promises... The more we delay the blessings of God. Abner's getting in the way of something that God's going to do. Now God is using all of this. And Abner can't prevent God from fulfilling his promise. But in this moment, Abner is finally recognizing the promise of God. He's responding to it. And we have a responsibility to do this as well. we got to recognize God's promises. And God has so many promises in the Bible. I want to point you to one spot. In 2 Peter, chapter 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1. This is a man that has seen God's promises... Fulfilled despite his flaws, despite the fact that he denied the Lord three times, God still had promises for Peter that he would make him some sort of shepherd over his people. And God did that. So Peter knows that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And he says this, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. By which we have been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see that? We've been given great and precious promises. There are so many things that the Lord promises to us, just to name a few. He promises that we'll be co-heirs with Him. That, that we get to share in His eternal inheritance. That we get to rule and reign with Christ. These are profound promises. He promises that He's going to prepare a place for us. He promises that we're going to spend eternity with Him. He promises that He's going to come back for us. And there are so many other things that the Lord promises us, us even individually, even personally, even specifically. And we got to recognize, remember those promises, and then not only that, respond to His promises. How do we respond? Well, here's a good example. In Hebrews chapter 11, back to the promise that Abraham was given from God. Sarah was obviously a crucial part of this promise. And this was for her as well. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, it says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged Him faithful who had promised. Though she laughed in the beginning, she judged God faithful. And she responded to the promise of God. How? How? She performed the act that got her pregnant. Okay, That was even an act to fulfill a promise. At least fulfill her part in fulfilling God's promises. See, we do have a responsibility. As I mentioned earlier, in Sarah's case... This seemed absolutely impossible. Again, literally laughable that God could fulfill this type of promise. And though she might have had some doubt in the beginning, she ultimately believed God, responded to his promise. And because she responded, she saw the promise fulfilled. What if she wouldn't have responded to God's promise? We don't know what would have happened. But that was her part of it. That was her piece of it. As I mentioned before, we do have a responsibility in God's promise. Sometimes it's to wait. Sometimes it's to act. We only know if we're seeking the Lord, seeking direction from Him and how we're to respond to the specific promises that He gives us. Maybe some He says, I want you to wait. And some of them He says, I want you to act. Or some of them He says, I want you to wait. And then there's an appropriate time to act. But don't act when I tell you to wait. And don't wait when I tell you to act. If we're in tune with him, if we're seeking him, we're going to have clarity as to how he wants us to respond to these things. Why? Because he also makes a promise. If you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. You're going to find me if you're truly seeking the Lord. If we're seeking the Lord with our whole hearts, he's going to respond to us. Maybe not right off the bat, but eventually he will. I also want to point something else out here with Abner. Look what he's doing. He recognizes God's promise. He acknowledges God's promise. And then he goes and spreads God's promise with other people. Now... Again, I question Abner's sincerity, right? Because we know already that he's power hungry and he has a history of rebellion. And it wasn't like, okay, one day Abner was praying and then all of a sudden uh the Lord like reminded him, hey, the kingship is really David's. And then Abner said, oh man, I don't want to bring this separation between me and God. Uh, I, I, I need to repent of this thing. We see that it was... Abner's circumstances that dictated his repentance is because Ishbosheth and him had a beef had some beef about uh, Saul's concubine. So I don't know if Abner is doing this out of sincerity. I doubt it, but nevertheless he's spreading the truth that David is the rightful king. See, some people. They quote the Scriptures when it's convenient for them to try to fulfill their own agenda. Other people, they recognize the truth of God's Word. They preach God's Word, even for their own selfish gain. And Paul talks about this specifically in Philippians chapter 1. And I love how Paul puts this. Because sometimes this can get me frustrated when I see some of these things happening. But I remember this scripture. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this. Verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He says, as long as the truth is getting out there, yeah, we, we got guys with questionable characters. But if they're preaching the cr- truth, I'm glad that Christ is just getting preached. Maybe this is the same way that God is looking at Abner. Even though this is a man that's doing this with selfish ambition, at least he's speaking truth that the kingdom is actually to be under David's authority. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19 And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner... And 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. You see that? David just had a feast with his enemy. Abner, the guy that rebelled against him in the last chapter, yeah, he's trying to make a covenant, but this dude was just David's enemy. Remember, when David writes in Psalm 23, in Psalm 23 verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is interesting. I don't know if this is the specific situation that he's talking about. I bet it happened more than once. But David is confident to have a feast with his enemy. Why? Because he knows God still has a promise to fulfill in his life. Now Joab, uh, next week we'll talk about this. He thinks Abner's trying to deceive David. We don't know for sure. It's really hard to say. And we'll get into that later. Later. But David isn't worried about Abner trying to deceive him or Abner trying to kill him at the table or Abner breaking his covenant. Why? Because he's not putting his faith in a covenant that a man made. He's putting his faith in a covenant that a perfect God made to him. That's why he's able to feast in the presence of his enemy. See, when we're standing on the promises of God, we're putting our faith in the covenants that He's made with us. We have nothing to fear. We don't even have anything to fear in the presence of our enemies. Why? Because if God made a promise to you and that promise hasn't been fulfilled yet, then that means there's still time for you, there's still time for me, there are still things that God needs to accomplish. And if God said that he's going to do it, it's absolutely going to happen. David knows that the fullness of God's promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. But he has nothing to worry about, nothing to be concerned about, because he knows what God said is going to come to pass and it hasn't yet. So I know God's not going to allow my enemy to destroy me. Yeah, things might be tough. There might be these obstacles along the road. There might even seem like there is no possible way that this promise could be fulfilled. How could it be fulfilled in this current circumstance? I don't see how this could happen. But if we're truly trusting in the Lord's promises, we'll recognize that His promise still stands, even when everything around us us tries to persuade us that His promises don't stand, that He's not going to keep His promise, that He didn't make that promise. To lead us to the questioning, to lead us to the uncertainty, but that's really the opposite of faith. Faith trusts God's promises, even when they seem impossible to fulfill. Let's pray, God. We uh, thank you for your promises, Lord. the The promises that you made to David, and, and uh, we know that you're going to even elaborate um, and 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 make a, another covenant with David and. Uh, that um, that's uh, foreshadowing the 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 Messiah Jesus whom you sent God and we thank you so much of all the promises that you've uh, made that is the greatest promise Um, Lord you said you would send your son you did Uh, and what he accomplished on the cross for us just opens the door to experience so many different promises Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you in everything that you tell us, even when uh, circumstances uh, seem like uh, those things will never happen. God, even when uh, there's discouragement and uncertainty and all those different things, Lord, that we we would trust you and that trust would look like responding in the way that you want us to respond whether it's uh, waiting, whether it's taking action, uh, whatever it is, God, please, um, if there are any promises, which I'm confident there are, that you've made to people in this room, I pray that you would remind them of them, that they would remember them, that they would recognize them, Lord, and you would uh, help them know how to respond to them. In Jesus' name, amen.